and welcome to another episode of Military History Plus, the podcast that examines the history of war in breadth and depth. I'm your co-host, Dr. Spencer Jones, joined as always by my friend, Professor Gary Sheffield. And on our last episode in this two-part series about battlefield guiding, we left on the greatest cliffhanger since the Empire Strikes Back. As I pitched a question to Gary's, asking him, is it possible to write serious, good military history about a battle without having visited that battlefield? And I'm pitching that question to you again now, Gary. Well, people have certainly done it, including me. Um, but the the more experience that I have have got in writing history, the more I'm convinced that you really do need to not merely visit the battlefield, but walk the ground to understand what was going on. I've got numerous examples of, you know, penny dropping experiences when you get to the ground. One of the biggest ones actually happened comparatively recently to me in 2015. When I, I visited Gallipoli, and, and I'd, I'd been to Gallipoli oh, at least three or four times before. What was different in 2015 is that the the Turks had built a, a, a viewing platform on Akibaba. Um, for those who don't know, Akibaba is the hill in the south of Gallipoli at, at Cape Helles that basically was held by the Turks throughout the Gallipoli campaign. And that's what the British were trying to capture. They never did capture it, of course. But anyway, standing up on, on, on Akibaba, you look round and you can basically see the whole of the peninsula laid out before you. In fact, you know, if you look over your shoulder, you can see Anzac Cove and Suvla Bay in the distance. And what struck me is how tiny the place is. And so looking to your front, you can see the whole of the Helles front laid out before you. And into that front, in 1915, was crammed tens of thousands of men. And that was a real jaw-dropping moment, because before that, I'd known it intellectually. You can look at a map, say, well, that's not very big. But actually seeing it laid out in front of you, Mm. it makes a huge difference. In the same way, actually, the first time I, I, I went to Gallipoli, which was many years ago, it was in the 1990s, and went up to Anzac, and very, very tactically looking at the ground, it's very difficult. And it, and if the Australians and the New Zealanders had been pushed out of their frontline trenches, there's, they've got nowhere to retreat to. Mm. There is no mm. strategic depth. They're basically straight off the edge of a cliff down onto the ground. And again, I'd read about that. But when you actually see it, it brings it all home to you. So Clearly, people have written military history. They, they've written about battlefields without having seen them. But it, it, it's difficult and it brings a le- level of, of nuance and richness. Mm. I'm almost mm. tempted to go off on one about how certain filmmakers <laughs> ought to go and visit battlefields, Waterloo, before they make films about them or they feature in, in, in films. Uh, but of course, it's even more so with historians. Mm. And just to echo that, um, I had a, a, a an experience which some people who I'm still in touch with on social media still refer to. I had a what you can describe as an epiphany on the battlefield of Ordrenyi. Now, Ordrenyi is a battle in a small battle in 1914. It's part of the great retreat from Mons, the British undertaking. It's really a flank guard action, but it's most famous because there's a cavalry charge. The British launch cavalry charge. They're being um, attacked by the Germans. They're trying to buy time. They launch this cavalry charge. It goes badly wrong. It runs into agricultural barbed wire, and the cavalry get dispersed and, and badly shot up. And there's various accounts of this charge and, and so forth, and most of them make the case that this was completely bonkers. Why on earth did they do it? But we actually go to the ground at Ordrenyi, the, the route the cavalry took, there's a sunken lane, and it is a seriously sunken lane. I mean, it's really deep. And the cavalry could move through this sunken lane on the, the, the flank of the German advance. Germans are advancing across an open field, in fact. And you can see, and suddenly it makes sense. If you're a cavalry officer, you think, I can get right on the flank of these Germans and I can burst out and take them in the flank. And walking that ground and understanding that, suddenly the cavalry charge becomes explicable. And what actually happens in the, the real charge is it goes too soon. They, they go too, they get overexcited, they launch, and if they'd waited perhaps 
five, ten minutes, let the Germans really extend themselves, they could have really done something quite quite unusual. Instead, they they snatched the opportunity to go off too soon. Germans were able to retreat behind the barbed wire. But suddenly it all made sense. Of course it makes sense you'd, try, you'd even try and do this. As a cavalry officer of 1914, this is your dream. And if you're not there, if you haven't been there, there's lots of talk about there's a sunken lane. Well, that, that can mean a lot of things. But actually being there, and it is, it's a perfect, you could hide an entire cavalry squadron in it. So that was an absolute eye-opening moment. And I remember at the yeah. time on the battlefield, I was so excited by this. It, it was like, uh, you know, um, someone had given me a stone tablet of wisdom. And I remember that being the, the first time on a battlefield I had that real, frankly, this suddenly all makes sense moment. Well, of course, one of the great things about cavalrymen of the period is, and excuse my pronunciation of the French term, they had coudoui. They had an eye for the battlefield. And so, and that was cultivated partly through hunting and steeplechasing, that actually they, they're trained to look for this sort of stuff. And I, I, I actually also been to, to 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 that battlefield and actually was pretty impressed by that. And um, that's one of the key things I think about walking the ground that things which appear to be inexplicable when you read about them, when you're actually on the ground, actually it does make sense because on the whole, soldiers are not stupid, commanders mm. are not stupid, and they do have an eye for ground and they're seeking to take advantage of it. And I think that's so critically important to walking the ground. I think it's worth broadening out our discussion to say something about more broadly how we as military historians can use battlefields as evidence. Mm. Now, we pre- in a previous podcast, we've talked about using documents and so on. That's That's the obvious way in which historians work but i guess military historians have an advantage over i don't know legal historians or constitutional historians in that we do have this additional source that we can actually go there and walk over the ground of course the first thing to say is the ground may have changed so of course famously when wellington goes back to waterloo he says by god they've ruined my battlefield because the uh, the dutch belgians have created the, the the lion mound to commemorate the the Dutch and Dutch and the Belgian part of the battlefield, and in doing so, they have reshaped a chunk of the the battlefield. So the ridge is actually uh, a, a different shape than it was in 1815. But there are other bits of the Waterloo battlefield which are still uh, pretty pretty much as they were. And it's not just it's not just walking the ground in terms of your know, bumps in the ground and, and and woods and things like that. I happened to be on the battlefield of of Waterloo in late July doing a recce for for, for a tour, and it started to rain. And stupidly, with the I was I was with with a friend, and we went off piece. We went off the obvious path and started to walk across the battlefield, and it got very muddy very, very quickly. This is in July. Mm. Bearing in mind Waterloo was fought historically on the 18th of June, so you know, roughly a month before in, 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 in terms of time of the year than we were there, and it bucketed with rain the night before. And it suddenly gave me a sense of it would be more difficult to get around the battlefield than I had realised, simply because it's very claggy mud. Mm-hmm. That, that reminds me just uh, of a slight off-piste comment but relate to that because of course it's in Belgium the only time in my life on a battlefield I lost a boot was I was doing a third eat tour <laughs> and um appropriately enough a third eat because battle defined by rain and mud it was very very wet and the Flanders mud the Flanders blue as it's sometimes called uh it's a it's a living thing that mud and I remember walking we were not too far from Pilcombe Ridge and I was walking through a field and these were proper walking boots these weren't sort of fancy damn boots and the, the, it took it clean off my foot it really did <laughs> so i completely understand wow. that but listeners who might not have experienced this it's real it's a real phenomenon that that flanders mud is like nothing i've ever encountered anywhere else <laughs> yeah so have, have you been influenced directly uh in your writing a military history history by what writing about I, I know you, you you've mentioned Audrey, but uh, any, mm. any any other examples yes so um 
just two really one i've mentioned previously in the previous episode spion cop in mm-hmm. south africa which is so striking when you're on it that the battle becomes so much more explicable and there's there's so many elements of spion cop that make so much more sense when you're there the, the the ebb and flow of the fighting suddenly makes sense you can understand why there's so much pressure on one particular side of the battlefield and that's because the the boars who are fighting the british can approach relatively covered so that was a big influence on my writing on my first book from Boar War to World War, I had a, a new understanding of that. And the other one is I've written a, um, in uh, my book Courage Without Glory about 1915 and the battles around Obers Ridge. And Obers Ridge, I think, is a really fascinating battlefield because it's it's very, very flat. And Obers yeah. Ridge is inexpertly named because you could walk from west to east across the battlefield and you could walk right over Obers Ridge and you won't have noticed it. But if you actually work out where you are and you stop on Obers Ridge, and Obers Ridge, I think, at its highest point is about 70 feet high. So it's absolutely minuscule and it's not 70 feet high universally. But if, you, if you're if you atop it and you actually stop and you turn and you look west to where, where the British positions were and you look at it on a map, you suddenly think, oh, my goodness. And, and a penny really drops because if you, if you just look at it, walk around it and don't really take it in, it just seems flat. But when you stand on it and you think, well, in this very flat area, the position of this ridge is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and those little kinks of of high ground that aren't necessarily conveyed on a map, and I think the name or Obers Ridge, you would think of something really big and impressive. <laughs> it's absolutely like, like 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 which of course is a huge yes, great ridge. a huge yeah. great yeah. ridge. Um, and you actually stand there and you think, oh crikey, this this suddenly is a bit different. And the final one I'll say because this is a an opportunity to sort of put a bit of physical um, legwork in. Uh, Gellervelt, so um, Gellervelt 1914, the Worcesters launched a counterattack, and brilliantly, you can you can go. You do have to navigate a, a small road, which is sometimes hazardous, especially with Belgian cyclists. But you can basically follow the, the charge of the Worcesters, because they do it at the charge. They cover about 400 yards from a wood line to Gellervelt Chateau. Chateau's still there. Um, you can't always go into the grounds, although it's a bit more friendly than it was. But I, I've actually run the, the route of the charge, and I'm reasonably fit and healthy. It wasn't carrying a pack. It wasn't muddy. <laughs> it wasn't carrying a rifle. And that, you know, that 400 yards is a pull. So to have done that with um, your know, rifle and kit um, and then burst into the, the Chateau grounds and fought a battle there, you know, that, that, that gave me some impression. But all the accounts say we had to do it in, in, in one lung rush because there's no cover. We couldn't stop. We just had to go. And when you actually walk that ground or run it, as I did, you think, oh, yeah, that actually makes perfect sense. There is no cover there. It's just, it's just fields. Um, so so things like that give you a, a real new impression, I think. Yeah. I mean, we're moving on to slightly different terrain here. Oh, sorry. Pun not intended. Slightly different ground here. I've got another one. Sorry. Um, because we've, we've moved away from looking at the ground in a sort of chin-stroking, pipe-sucking way. Oh, gosh, yes, I never didn't realise the importance. To actually physically experiencing something of mm, the mm. Of course, we're not being shot at and, you know, the rest of it. So you're not really experiencing anything like, like the soldiers. But you can get some sense of it. I had a similar thing uh, at Gallipoli last... No, not last time, I was there a time before that, so it would have been 2015, in which we walked up from Anzac Beach, there's a track, and I can't remember the name of it, which takes you up onto the ridge above. But I was there with a group of very, very uh, fit young men and women. So, so all young by my standards, anyway. Uh, and uh, all, all in the military. And I'm pleased to say that I wasn't the last one to go up there. I was in my, you know, I was <laughs> mid-50s at the time because there was a one-legged veteran who was even slower than I was. But actually, point being that, you know, no one was shooting at us. It was uh, it was quite a hot day, but, you know, it wasn't un- unbearable. The sheer physical exertion of getting up off of Anzac Beach by a, a well-beaten track, which it wouldn't have been in 1915, that actually really brought it home to me. Mm. You know, something of the difficulty. I'm not pretending I experienced anything of, of what the soldiers did in 1915, but I get some idea of the difficulty of getting up getting up there. Another sort of eye-opening moment is when I revisited a part of the Somme battlefield I hadn't been to for some time. And I've written quite a lot about the Somme uh, 
15, 20 years ago. Uh, I hadn't written anything much about it recently. But I was there on a, a military staff ride earlier this year, actually. And we went to the the Sunken Lane, talking about Sunken Lanes, there's one in every battlefield zone, it appears, at Beaumont Hamill. And of course, it's where the famous footage from the Battle of the Somme film is taken, the first Lancashire Fusiliers, uh, very, very famous clip of film. Anybody who's seen anything on the Somme will, will, will have seen it. Anyway, but um, the it's not not the first time I've done it, but the first time I've done it for some time. We started down in the sunken lane, and then we walked up onto Hawthorne Crater, which was a German redoubt in 1916, which actually the British explode a mine under. And the idea is that actually it's going to uh, eliminate the German machine gun post which will allow them to get forward. And this time, because I had a, a little bit of time to wander around on my own, we, we we sent the students off to have a wander around. So I actually had a, 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 a few moments on my own. It then struck me, not for the first time, what a fantastic target a German machine gunner had being up on Hawthorne Redoubt. You could see directly into the sunken lane. And what it meant when or if and when the the mine failed to eliminate it. You could suddenly see the whole plan on this part of the front is predicated on that mine working, and that that's the only way that the infantry can get forward. And you can see why they blew a second mine when they attacked over the same ground in November 1916. And so sometimes... My point being, you need more than one trip to a battlefield. Mm -hmm. So you might go to a battlefield, uh, go away, even write about it, as as I have done, and then go back later and, and, and to look at the ground again and think, actually, I should have made more of the importance of Hawthorne Redoubt than I did. So if I ever write anything on the Somme again, I will put much more in about that because, quite simply, it is a tactical feature which, unless it's neutralized, eliminated, it's going to completely stymie your attack on this front. Mm. So it's not exactly mm. a penny-dropping moment because I knew that beforehand, but it reinforced it no end by being given the chance to have a quiet wander around on, a, on our own. I should actually say that actually one of the problems of being a battlefield historian stroke guide, when you do lead lots of battlefield tours, as I do and I, I know you do too, is you don't often get that chance for quiet reflection and wandering around, unless you get a recce, which you don't always. Um, and so too often you go out there and do the same thing you've done before. Mm. And so sometimes taking a deep breath, taking a pause, going out and wandering around a bit on your own can make a real difference. Mm. It can. And, and just I wanted to pick up on you mentioning recce, because this is something that, I think all good battlefield guides, battlefield historians do. Um, and I, if I had to pick one thing that separates really good professional guides from um, not so good professional guides, it's it's, it's wrecking. Because for those who don't know, listeners, uh, a battlefield recce is you just go out on your own and you study the ground yourself. Um, generally preparatory to giving a tour. And it can be incredibly useful. In fact, I'd say it's essential if you've never seen the battlefield. I don't think you can just guide a battlefield, turn up and guide a battlefield. I think that's that's extremely dangerous. Um, but it also gives you that chance to reflect. And, and sometimes, even if it's a battlefield you know well, as, as you say, Gary, you can go back to it and have a quiet moment and think, oh, actually, just something's just clicked. And, and just about things that click, just another element I'd say about battlefields that perhaps we tend to forget and it's certainly one that's affected me, is the weather. So to give you an, uh, an example of this, I was in, when I was in South Africa, I was at a place called Hart Hill. It's part of a wider series of battles that are fought in February 1900 called the Battle of Tagala Heights. And it's a pretty ghastly battle. It goes Everything goes wrong for the British. And one of the, the parts of this is the Irish Brigade, which attacks this position against the Boers, has been marched through scorching South African summer heat uh, in February and then it tries to attack this strong defensive position and it's repulsed. And I was out there, it was actually January, 
so still South African summer. And I remember the heat that day. And South African heat, Southern Hemisphere heat is different to Northern Hemisphere heat. I'm absolutely convinced of this, but you're in you're in high ground, you're quite high above sea level, little cover. And I remember the sun was, it was an act of violence. And I got my bush hat, I was covered in suntan lotion. I got w- as much water as I wanted, but I was thinking, this is brutal heat. And to I'd be marching up in khaki surge, and carrying kit and pack and, and going through that. And uh, I came to the time to say, oh, the troops were tired. And I can believe that. And, and I remember th- that was a sort of penny-dropping moment. I thought, you know, th- you think tired, oh, a little bit out of breath, oh, 10 minutes rest, you'll be fine. This is, you know, absolutely sapping heat. And um, I- I'd also say the opposite. And you mentioned in episode one, Gary, about uh, rain on battlefield tours. Uh, I'm convinced the weather waits for a battlefield tour to begin and then breaks. But when you are actually on the ground and it's raining, one thing that comes across is how cold battlefields actually are. Um, when you stood around, or even if you're walking around and the rain's beating down, even in our nice, you know, Gore-Tex boots and our or raincoats, it can be pretty, pretty miserable experience. I'm sure we've all had one or two of those experiences where you're, you're valiantly trying to deliver some history mm-hmm. and your hands are absolutely numb holding the map on things. Uh, and I often use that as a teaching tool, particularly with undergraduates, say, well, think how cold we are, think how miserable we are in this rain. Um Think about, you know, what it was like for a soldier. Just to add another anecdote to that, one of the moments I saw of absolute pathos of um, camaraderie was on the University of Wolverhampton's undergraduate Normandy tour. Appalling weather, absolutely pouring with rain. We were near Bull Bridge, um, for those of you who know this. Uh, the weather is just horizontal rain, wind, cold, completely unseasonable because we were out there in, in May. It wasn't you know, expected dreadful weather. And I remember we've done the standing, everyone's really cold. I'd read one of the students produced from inside his raincoat a pack of Kit Kats and distributed them around. And morale soared. It was like an absolute treat. And seeing that everyone's faces let up, oh, some chocolate. And I used that as a teaching moment. And yeah. said, you know, so think, see how much this has raised our spirits. Think about what those little treats would do for soldiers. What? For the avoidance of doubt, we're not suggesting that this is on the same level as going through the Battle of the Somme <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but no, I think they're absolutely right. You know, we get a very, as going on a battlefield tour when, it, when it's it's pouring with rain or it's baking hot. We get a just a sense of the problems that soldiers face on the battlefields, which actually I think is is important in two ways. I mean, as you're saying, actually it it. For students, particularly, it 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 bit of an eye opener. But actually, as historians, we need to bear that in mind when we are writing about well, why didn't this battalion cross the five hundred yards from here to here? It's because they were exhausted. And of course, when we're talking about exhaustion on the battlefield, it can be oh, just a bit tired. It can be you can barely drag one foot in front of another, or even you're almost anaesthetized. You're almost in a in a coma because of the depths of fatigue. And it's very difficult to replicate that. I mean, I <laughs> you know, would hate to inflict that on a party I took to a battlefield, but we can get a small taster of it. Mm. <clears throat> um, just uh, something that just, just occurs to me uh, about, I mean, you mentioning Normandy just now. I had a, an example of history re- uh, repeating itself. Because I took a party, uh, a military party, and we did Operation Epsom, which is the uh, British attack in, in, in Normandy in, in June 19, 1944. Anyway, we, we, we traced the second Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, who actually succeed in getting further than any anybody else. Uh, and they penetrate to, to this small French village and they, and they, 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 they dig in. And uh, it's basically as far as the British get in so-called Scottish corridor. It's, it's 15th Scottish Division attacking. And a group of students were standing around and I was in the middle saying, well, this is what happened, so-and-so, uh, and so on and so forth. And a group of locals came up and started, they obviously wanted to speak to us. And the students say, oh, yeah, yeah, go away. We're listening to Gary. And in the end, they they, they, they rather grudgingly, uh, when I'd finished speaking, listened to, to this 
these these locals. And there was an old man who basically had been there as a small boy, and he was explaining, you know, his 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 memories. That it, it was very interesting, and that was a real throwback because if you read the accounts of the Argyles in their regimental history, once they get to the the crossroads and they're digging in to up defensive positions, this group of Frenchmen turn up, and the Argyle is saying, oh, go away. We know we can't be bothered with you now. They're the local French resistance who want to turn <laughs> up and help. So, so uh, you know, two parties of Brits, decades apart, don't want to listen to the locals on exactly the, 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 the same spot. <laughs> okay. Um, what are the practicalities of battlefield touring? I mean, from both from just taking parties around and actually act and, and actually using the battlefields as as evidence what are what are the big things to do and not to do when you go to mm. battlefields that's a really good question i think a lot of it comes down to your personal style because di- different guys have got different styles but the number one thing i, I would say and I, it's a pitfall i sometimes fall into is a battlefield guide uh, or doing a stand is not the same as doing a lecture you don't have to, and you shouldn't try and convey absolutely everything. I think establishing where people are in, on the battlefield at the time, what they're doing and things, but letting the group actually absorb this terrain, having much more of an interactive seminar, if you will, when you're standing there, allowing people to walk around and look at the battlefield from different angles is absolutely crucial. And I have to confess, when I started doing battlefield touring, Possibly because I was overexcited and a bit younger and inexperienced. I would sometimes just spend too long talking about this. And I, I sort of learned a lesson very quickly because people would just start drifting off. Not possibly they were bored of what I was saying, but also because they wanted to look at the ground. So I think it's it's much more of a, um, a sort of interchange of ideas. Yeah. Yes, they're there. They want to listen to you, but also they're there to be allowed to absorb the ground and use the ground as a tool as well. That's an important thing. Um, yes, you can point things out on maps. That can be very interesting, orient people. But rather than saying, oh, and there's a ridge over here, if you can, go and stand on the ridge. Um, yeah, little yeah. things like that. So, uh, And I've learned some of these, I have to say, listeners, through bitter experience. Uh, <laughs> there was no sort of battlefield guide training program um, when I started doing battlefield guiding. You just had to learn on the on the spot, really. Uh, but what about you, Gary? You, you're obviously an old hand at this. Uh, well, I'd, I'd agree with all of that. Uh, and I think if you can walk the ground rather than simply stand and look at it uh that's all to the good although it, of course it isn't always possible i i used to be quite sniffy in my younger days about empathy and i've changed mm. my mind about that because i think that's that's a big part of it partly because i was reacting against the sort of very sentimental sloppy war poets idea of the first world war well i think i i overcorrected but hopefully i'm back into the middle one example of that is i remember it was in 1997 Mm. and with a colleague from sandhurst we took the first battalion the queen's lancashire regiment to the somme and we went to sayre and of course that's where the accrington pals attacked and one of the things we did was after we'd done the, the stand on the front line, there's a cemetery just out in No Man's Land, Queen Cemetery, I think it's called. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And um, and and we said, just go out there and have a wander around and come back and tell us what you you see. And uh, they came back, and I, I can't do the accent, and I will bleep <laughs> some of the words, but it was, course, sir, effing hell, there's a bloke there for the same age as me from the same street as me. And of course, yes. These were young guys, you know, the same sort of age as some of the Accrington pals who were there, you know, 80 years after the event. And it really struck home to them because this was home territory. And so the, the whole empathising bit, I think, is important, though it shouldn't You to strike a balance between education and being didactic, but actually allowing people to empathise and actually it is an emotional experience going to a battlefield. There's, 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 there's no no two ways two ways about it. Uh, you certainly shouldn't go on too long. I found it much better if you do a sort of ten minute burst, say, and then say any questions. And sometimes you'll get questions there and then, 
more often than not, people will quietly come up to you mm. when you're wandering around over the next 20 minutes, half hour or so, and ask you questions. And that's the point at which you can start to convey more information. Cemeteries, mm. I think, are also really important that you've got to be careful how you use them. Now, some people actually don't like the idea of doing stands from cemeteries. Mm. I I I don't mind that, although I'm always a bit reluctant to do them oddly in non-British cemeteries, mm. in a French mm. or a German cemetery, for, for example. Um, but cemeteries, I mean, there are numerous reasons for visiting. There, there's the sort of paying respect, which I think is important. So most military battlefield tours I've been on, there will be an act of remembrance at some stage, particularly if you've got a padre with you, a wreath laying, uh, bugler playing the last post, that sort of thing. But also, cemeteries often tend to be in really quite important places tactically. Mm. So one which I've used many times is, uh, uh, I think it's Bazentane Ridge Cemetery, mm. which is on the German, get it right, the German second line on the Somme. Mm. And frequently I, I, I do sort of, you know, basically three stands for the price of one. Because you go up onto the cemetery, you stand at the back, you look back to the British front. No, no, it's, am I getting this right? It's, 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 it's the German first line for the 1st of July, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I, right. Well, that's right. So that's right. So I stand on, stand, stand in the cemetery, you look back to the, the British start line. You can talk about the attack of 13 Corps, so the 18th Division, the 30th Division, the two divisions which are really, really successful on the 1st of July. Um, you can then talk about the 14th of July attack, um, and then you can take them to the front of the cemetery, and you can look out on the left at uh, Highwood, on the right on Delville Wood, and you can talk about the, the failure to exploit until very late on the day of the 14th of July. And if you're really pushed for time, you can then talk about you know, the second half of the Somme campaign, the fighting for Highwood, the fighting for for, for, for Delville Wood. Um, and that cemetery is also something which, like any cemetery, it triggers emotions. You cannot mm. fail to be moved by walking through it. Particularly, I think, if you're British, I think particularly if you've got a connection with a particular regiment, because, of course, British headstones have regimental badges. Mm. And mm. so many of these regiments no longer exist. They've, they've been amalgamated. In some cases, they've been disbanded. And it can, it, it can degenerate into a bit of, sort of you know, badge spotting, looking for an, un, for an unusual one. But there is, again, there's that aspect of emotion and... It's connecting with the local, which, of course, is so important in Britain of the First World War and indeed today. So if you're from Nottingham, you find a Sherwood Forester's badge. Mm. It's it's that sort of thing. And I remember first time I went to High Wood, uh, the London Cemetery is nearby. And I'm, I'm a Londoner and, you know, I've got to have a certain emotional attachment to the place. That was important to me. So I think so. I certainly wouldn't rule out doing stands from cemeteries. They need to be done with utmost respect. Um, but I, th I think that the guys who are buried there wouldn't mind because they were soldiers, mm. and you're taking very often soldiers there, and you're educating people. Mm. I think that's a, a very very good point, and I, I'd agree with you. It's it's sometimes difficult to know quite how to pitch if you're you're in or near a cemetery and you need to do a stand there. Um, just as a, a sort of anecdote, that the, probably the, the worst review I ever had as a battlefield guide was at Hooge. And uh, those you know, obviously, Hooge has a huge cemetery, but um, huge at Hooge. But it's where it's positioned is actually quite a good place to sort of talk about the importance of terrain. And I was doing a stand outside the cemetery. And in the, the feedback that I was given, uh, it's, uh, one of the guests was very unhappy because I talked with too much enthusiasm about the battle when I was next to a cemetery and she thought it was disrespectful. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, but th <laughs> these are, in, in, in serious terms, though, they, that is something to consider with, with a battlefield tool. People react differently to these sort of things. I don't want to dismiss that complaint out of hand. It obviously upset her quite a lot. No, no. Um, so that these are all the little things you have to consider on on a battlefield. And that leads leads me to a sort of question for you, Gary, and that's 
What are your do's and don'ts on a battlefield tour? Okay. Uh, a big don't actually is stand somewhere that's very noisy and you can't be heard. So actually, I, was, I, I thought that you were about to say standing next to the road <laughs> at Hood Cemetery because it, it, you know, these juggernauts rattling past, people, people couldn't hear. It's a serious point, actually. Um, you need to go somewhere where not only people can see things, they can also hear you as well. And so... I think that's 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 a really a really good good thing, uh, a, a really important thing I should say to to take on board. Another big don't, from my point of view, is them and us. As in, when you're talking about the British, it's we did this, uh, or, 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 or or they did that. Now, channeling my inner Ridley Scott, you know, we weren't there. And it's a serious point. I think that you need to have a degree of objectivity. I used to tell off students for saying we when they meant the British. No, 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 no. Be objective as far as you can. Uh, talk about it in those sorts of terms. Also, you shouldn't be too, if you're a Brit, Anglo-centric, if you're an American, America-centric, whatever it is, when talking about battlefields, the enemy always has a vote mm. in a battle. And you should make some attempt to cover the opposite side, those on the other side of no man's land. Now, it's entirely understandable, I think entirely okay, if you look at a particular battlefield stand from largely from the point of view of one army rather than the other. But leaving out the, the enemy is daft because you only get one side of the picture. And something which I found to be really effective on occasions is to do a battlefield stand from, from two places. You start from where the British or the Americans or Canadians are, and then you take them the other side where the Germans are. And apart from anything else, you get very often a wow factor. I had no idea the Germans could see so much, or you know, I had no idea that the, the Allies was so well concealed. So two sides of the battle you really need to bring into it. And I must say, it's, uh, as far as the First World War is concerned now, we actually have um, slightly easier, for those of us who don't read German very easily, than we used to, because uh, Jack Sheldon, a retired British Army officer who did the, uh, the German Army staff course, fluent in German, has translated a good deal of German uh, regimental uh, histories and other material so actually, we now had a very, very good German's eye view of many First World War battlefields. And I found his books absolutely inv invaluable when I've taken people mm. to, to Western Front battles. Mm. But mm. Lots of other things I could talk about, but there are two or three, however many I've said, that strike me as being re really important. Mm. What, what about mm. you? Uh, I agree with all those. Um, just a comment about not, not doing a stand where it's noisy or indeed dangerous because especially in Belgium, those Belgian cyclists do not take prisoners and they will come <laughs> at you at speed. So I always give the group a, a good warning about that. Um, I'm reminded too of, I've uh, guided the Battle of Mons many times and one of the highlights of that is you can go to the Nimi Rail Bridge, but oh. it is still a rail bridge and there are very fast moving trains rocketing up and down it. And so it's a difficult one because you want to tell the story of uh, Sidney Godley and Maurice Dees and their VC winning action. You have to be quite close to the bridge, but there's a real risk. <laughs> you know, there's a train going to interrupt it. So, but you have to consider that. Well, I, I, I was actually filmed by the BBC uh, on 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 the on, on the Nimi Bridge, and it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. You know, with <laughs> yeah. the sort of you know the express from Paris to Brussels shooting past at uh, <laughs> yeah. at regular intervals. Absolutely, I've had to. Uh, very, very sternly tell people to get off there or get away from the line on more than one occasion down at Mons. The the other thing I'd say for a, a good battlefield tour, particularly if it's a, a if it's students or if it's civilians, is um, talk to the group and try and find out. Uh, sometimes the group will, will volunteer this information straight away, but more often than not, 
you know, talk to them a little bit, find out if they've got a connection to a particular action on the route. It's amazing over the years, the connections people have had either through direct relations or they knew a neighbor whose father was here. And if you can bring in those stories, it's you can have incredible moments of, of sort of pathos out there as well, which is, is really powerful. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is, is be prepared. Um, <laughs> this is proper planning prevents poor performance. You can add another word to that to make it rude. <laughs> um, wandering out to a battlefield with only a vague idea of what you're going to say or do or where anything is, is a recipe for disaster. Um, be prepared for all kinds of unexpected things. So the weather will not cooperate with you. It will be windy or rainy or foggy. Think about what you might yeah. do with that. Um, you know, the farmer might be digging up his field that day and it's going to be really noisy. Think about an alternative position. Yeah. Um, the, these sort of things and uh, that that I it, we talked in episode one about what's the difference between a tour manager, a battlefield guide, and a battlefield historian. Um, all these sort of roll in the back of your mind when you're out on yeah. tour, I think. Well, we ought to start to wind up, but there's one last thing I, I'd like us to talk about. Is that actually about what we think about the various monuments that have cropped up on battlefields, uh, how we use them, are they a hindrance? Can they be helpful? Because some battlefields are very, very well preserved. I'm thinking about some of those in in the United States. Uh, the the U.S. National Park Service does, does a brilliant job at places like like Vicksburg. I've been to and Charlottesville and and, and so on. Um, but in times past, there has been a huge number of monuments plonked down mm. on battlefields, which sometimes frankly get in the way or you think about waterloo which is covered in battlefields and increasingly first and second world war battlefields have got new monuments so um what's what's your take 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 on on, on them from the point of view of the battlefield historian i I, i've got mixed feelings about this because on one hand, I think it brings it that people are, are attracted to monuments, people react to them, people who actually enjoy monuments. But on the other hand, I find it's it can be often be to a detriment of telling the story of the battlefield when you've got a hulking great monument or a statue stood in the way and it, it sort of detracts from, from the ground, people's eyes go to it. People inevitably are interested in it. And that's a story in itself. Why, why do people build monuments and what, what do they represent? But for battlefield guiding, it can be a pain. And the one battlefield that sticks in my head for that is Gettysburg. Now, Gettysburg's a great battlefield in many respects, but it is, I've heard it described as a sort of Civil War Disneyland because there's a statue on every single blinking corner. And some of them are very impressive. You know, I think about the um, the, Peninsula, uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Monument and this sort of thing. But they're everywhere. And it does, it, it, you know, when you're trying to walk Pickett's Charge, I remember actually being on a tour doing that. I was, I was just a member of the tour. I wasn't guiding it. Um, the guide was actually commenting, um, oh, just ignore those statues. Just imagine that they're not there. And it, it, it does sort of add a sort of element to it. I still think Gettysburg's a terrific battlefield to visit. But by comparison, one of my absolute favourite battlefields for the American Civil War is Antietam. And Antietam does have some small monuments, but it's very, very discreet. It's nothing like Gettysburg. And you can walk the battlefield and get an incredible sense of time and place and the folds of the ground and thing, things. And it's for me, it's a it's a much more rewarding battlefield in, in some respects to study because the, it's, it's comparatively untouched. So I have mixed feelings, as I say, that, that I can understand yeah. it attracts people. People do enjoy those monuments. People enjoy, you know, interact with them. As a, as, from a purely military history perspective, I'd love it if we could press a button and make them disappear while we talk about the ground, and then we can press another <laughs> button and make them reappear. But until yeah. we get virtual reality, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I, 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 I share your, your reservations, actually. Um, having said that, I mean, the American battlefields, or the, or the National Park battlefields anyway, they are so well preserved and they can give quite a strong narrative because you you know they the guidebooks and what have you you can go from 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 place to place and actually make sense of them so you're not standing in an empty field which is often the case in battlefields in europe saying you know which was on this very spot that you know there was a machine gun post over there and so that sense of preservation i think can be quite helpful generally speaking the 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 american battlefields aren't trying to push any particular uh, interpretation. They 
because they're actually written by qualified historians who I think are are very, very good. Clearly, some of the monuments are trying to push a particular uh, interpretation. Now, think about you know the huge number of Confederate monuments at various battlefields, I've, American battlefields I've been to, or even at Waterloo, where you've got the Lion Mound, which if you take that at face value, is basically saying this is a Dutch-Belgian victory. Well, up to a point, Lord Copper. Uh, so there are these sorts of things. And actually simply going over the battlefield and talking about individual monuments can itself, I think, be a very rewarding thing for the historian to do. Mm. The other thing, I think, is that sometimes inadvertently, monuments can be brilliant visual aids on the battlefield. Mm. So, for example, I was at uh, Ypres in oh, October and we went to the 18th Division Memorial at, uh, at Clapham Junction, which mm. uh, sets out the order of battle of 18th Division. And you could suddenly set out in front of you and say, OK, this is what a British division of the First World War looks like. It has three brigades. It has you know, cyclist company it has all these sorts of things. So all of this stuff laid out in in front of in front of the of the party was was very very useful. So sadly, because we haven't got a button which makes all these things disappear, I think it it's important for historians to work with the monuments <laughs> rather than simply uh, wish wish they they weren't there. But they're actually, of course, they are now part of the battlefield. I mean, some of them have been there for hundreds of years on, on some battlefields yeah. uh, and and you, you 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 have to deal with that but i must say that for me one of the great thrills of battlefield touring staff riding if you like is going on a recce to a battlefield that you haven't been to before particularly mm -hmm. one that's not particularly well laid out and has, isn't covered by memorials. I remember a few years ago, I went with some friends to the Western Front. It was in 2003, actually, uh, mm. in that summer where it was absolutely baking hot. And I remember drinking gallons and gallons of water as we wandered around the battlefields. And we did some of the 1918 battlefields south of the, of, 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 of the 1916 Somme battlefield. Um, and you're looking at farmers' fields. There's a few bits and pieces which indicates that there was a, a battle there. But it was us, some guidebooks, which weren't terribly helpful, some maps, some divisional histories. And it was tremendously rewarding and actually intellectually very exciting, working out where the units were and what happened and as far as we could, walking the ground. So there is a part, there is a place, I should say, for going over very well-marked battlefields like Gettysburg or Waterloo. But actually, it's the intellectual excitement of going across, if you like, virgin territory, which I find particularly enthralling. Mm -hmm. uh, there is that absolute sort of thrill when you do get to study the battle, especially in your own time on a recce and, and just sort of absorb it and think about it, let it sort of percolate in your brain and so on. And just going back to Antietam, I think one of the, reasons I fell in love with that battlefield was when I first went there actually with a colleague and uh, we had the battlefield complete to ourselves and at the time you could just get from the visitor centre a, a walking tour that was it there was there actually there was almost no signposting you just followed the walking tour that took you roughly chronologically around the battlefield and we we spent hours absolutely hours on this battlefield just you know studying things and, and looking at things and it was it was one of the, the I still think about it now and it was year, over a decade ago now but it just it, it yeah. gave me an absolute love for that battlefield which has never gone away and uh, it is a pleasure when you get to do that and then of course share it actually on a tour when you guide a tour that adds a, another element to it as well. Well, let's start to wrap up. So, is Antietam your favourite battlefield to visit? Oh, that's a good question. I think Antietam, um, cross between Antietam and probably Spion Kopp. Uh, I think both of them are just terrific battlefields. I think in some ways Antietam is more rewarding in the sense you can really walk around it. And it's a it's a comparatively small battlefield, you know, concentrated fighting. The ground is unchanged. You can really understand why the battle flows in the way it does. Because when you can see maps of Antietam, there's a lot of big Union arrows coming at the Confederate lines. And you think, well, what happened here? When you actually walk the route for the Union, the ground is more broken than you might think. Um, 
there's lots of uh, dead ground, there's ups and downs, and you can understand why their attacks get funneled in certain directions. It's just natural. And that was a real clicking moment when I was there. And Spiel and Kopp, just because it is one of those battlefields which is quite unique. I mean, it is in the middle of nowhere. There is no civilization anywhere around it for miles. Uh, And you get such a sense of time and place. And again, it's a very small battlefield. The actual fighting takes place in a area about the size of a sort of couple of football pitches really uh and that has got such a sense of time and space what about you gary what are your favorites okay i've been thinking about this and i'm going to mention four very briefly uh normandy mm. Somme. those two because i have a genuine emotional attachment to both of them and i have done a lot of work on them i've done a lot of reading on them and i have been to those two battlefields more often than any other battlefields Gallipoli, because ah, it's actually an emotional connection, but I find it absolutely fascinating. More so now, actually, than I did initially, because I've simply done more reading on it. I've done quite a lot of original research on it. And because it's a bit like you were saying earlier, it's so small. You can The terrain is actually quite difficult in places, but you can get around it relatively easily and relatively quickly. And the other one is Waterloo. And despite everything I've said about battlefields that are covered in monuments, uh, I took a party to Waterloo earlier this year, and I've been there, I don't know how many times before, seven or eight, nine times. But this is the first time for many years I had a preliminary recce, the one in which we got covered in mud. And somehow, I don't know if this has happened to you, suddenly everything drops into place. You suddenly can join up the dots and you're aware of the relationship of different parts of the battlefield and suddenly it all makes sense. And for this year, after probably possibly my ninth time of visiting, I suddenly thought about Waterloo. Yes, I finally get it. I finally feel I know the battlefield intimately. And that's a very, very rewarding feeling. It's also a battle I know very well. I've done a lot of reading about it over the years. But I guess something the last thing I'll say about battlefields is if you're a military historian, if you're not visiting battlefields, you're missing something really quite significant. It's partly emotional. It's also, I think, an important piece of evidence if you're writing about a battlefield. It's there for you to walk over with all of its caveats, all of its problems. And it's something which I think we as military historians ought to be very grateful for the fact that we've got, that most other historians don't have this form of evidence. And it's something I've certainly come to appreciate more as the years have gone by. Mm. I think that's a, a fantastic summary of of the importance of battlefields and that comment that it is a resource that in our field of history we have that isn't always available to other um, fields of history in the same way is, is really worth remembering. They, these are, are great resources. Um, they're rewarding. They're wonderful. And, and dare I say it, um, you know, use them or lose them because as urban areas expand, as, as the way land is um, used changes, inevitably battlefields will, will start to vanish. And um, yeah. it's only through visiting them and, and making them part of the, the local economy that we actually ensure that they're preserved for future generations. That's something else we could talk about possibly in a later podcast. But yeah, the impact of of battlefields in 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 modern times and the, the, the local economy well thank you for that um I, i'm I, well, i've had a fascinating uh two two episodes worth of discussion about battlefield touring staff rides so with that we'll say goodbye from me professor gary sheffield and goodbye from me dr spencer jones mm-hmm.